Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross. For 80 years, Capital Blue Cross has offered products that provide peace of mind and promote good health. Focused on creating a healthier future for our communities through innovations like its Capital Blue Health and Wellness Centers that provide in-person service and inspire healthy living. Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross. Live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle, committed to research that improves health, reduces recovery times, and brings new treatments and therapies to our area before they're available elsewhere. More information is at upmcpinnacle.com. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. The U.S. Senate passed the tax reform bill, that's what it's being called by most people across the country, along party lines early Saturday morning. The bill is currently being hashed out by a House and Senate conference committee before delivery to the president to be signed into law. Joining us on the line is Congressman Lloyd Smucker, Republican, representing portions of Lancaster, Berks, and Chester counties. Congressman Smucker, welcome to the program. Good morning, Scott. Thank you for having me. You do support the tax reform package. Now, of course, we have to see what the final package looks like once it comes out of conference committee. But uh, generally, why do you support it? Yeah, I did vote for it, obviously, in the House uh, and then the Senate passed their version. And so we'll see what the final uh, version looks like uh, coming out of conference committee. But you know, two big things that, that uh, both bills do, really, there's just is minor differences uh, between the two. But Essentially, it helps uh, individuals and families by lowering rates, uh, asking less taxes of every uh, income bracket, and putting more money back in the uh, pockets of uh, low- and middle-income Americans. Uh, Simplifies the system. Uh, 95% of those who file as individuals will use the new standard deduction. Uh, Give them more time to spend with their families rather than uh, spending time filling out uh, their t- their tax forms or paying someone to do that for them. So that's the first piece. And the second piece is uh, what it does for our economy. And essentially, our current uh, tax structure for corporations is not competitive with those uh, around the world. So we have a, a lower corporate tax rate in this bill. It'll go down to 20%. That's down from 35%, which as I said, today is the highest in the industrialized world. We essentially today incentivize corporations to take their investment and their jobs offshore. So we're changing that. This will bring jobs back on shore. It will create more opportunities uh, in jobs, and it's going to increase wages because we're going to see an economy that uh, jump-started through this bill. This is a complicated bill, and it's been analyzed from all angles from what we know of it so far. But before we talk about individual taxpayers, let's talk about that corporate tax rate. Uh, Those corporate tax cuts would be made uh, permanent. And as you said, the idea is to help American business. And uh, the idea behind that, of course, is have businesses reinvest, maybe hire more people, more maybe wages go up, as you said. But some have already said said that those profits would go to their shareholders. Is there any way to control that to make sure, I mean, you can't tell a business how to use their money, but that a majority of those businesses do reinvest and hire people? They do. Well, the good good news is this isn't the first that this has been done. We're not reinventing the wheel. Uh, This was done in the John F. Kennedy presidency, and it was done under Ronald Reagan. And both... uh, times that we cut rates, uh, we created conditions where businesses were willing to invest their capital. They grew jobs. The economy grew. Wages grew. And we know that's exactly what's going to happen in this case as well. But that's already happening right now. I I mean, in in large part, in anticipation of this bill. So for the last uh, two quarters we've had between three and four percent growth the stock market is all-time high optimism of business owners of all sizes is at all-time high and it's because of the anticipation of this bill and it's because of what we're doing on regulatory relief as well congressman how do you how do you know that for sure because even in the uh, last years of the obama administration economic indicators were going in a positive direction they were, um, but you know, I uh, get out in my district, talk to uh, business owners and families all across the district, um, and I I 
didn't surprise me at all, uh, Scott, when I first heard that we had 3% growth in the uh, second quarter of this year uh, because I was out talking to businesses, and they're excited about the direction that we're going. And I'm absolutely convinced that not only is it already starting to jumpstart the economy, but it's going to result in sustained growth over a long period of time. Uh, individual tax rates, you mentioned this earlier. Uh, most of the analysis is saying that uh, there will be a tax cut for uh, a majority of American in, Americans in the first few years. But except for the most well-to-do, those with higher incomes, that in a few years from now, that some of those people will be seeing tax increases. Well, that, that assumes that we'd have to snap back to today's rates. Um, and we're doing this bill through a vehicle called budget reconciliation, so we're constrained by, uh, by that vehicle. Um, I would love to see those tax rates be made permanent. Uh, and, in fact, I think future Congresses will do that. They'll see that this is working. Uh, there'll be plenty of opportunity to further extend or make those rates permanent. So I don't think that you're going to see – uh, you know, those rates snap back to what we are seeing today. We're getting a lot of phone calls, but Congressman, I know you only have agreed to be on with us for 10 minutes, so I'll try to hit as much as I can. Sure. In 1985, when the last major tax reform bill was passed, it took a year and a half, and there were hearings, lots of hearings, and it was a bipartisan effort between the Reagan administration and Democrats in Congress. This is a complicated bill. Why is it moving so fast? Well, so I think you know, first one needs to understand that this has been our agenda or the agenda of the Republican conference in the House, at least, uh, for uh, years. And so you know, this framework for this bill uh, not only has been developed by the committee over months of work, it was also included in the plan for our conference called The Better Way, The Broad Principles. Um, and so, you know, th- this is something that uh, has been, it's been being worked on for years and then in, in detail over the past, uh, uh, you know, since the beginning of this year. Well, yes, yeah, since the beginning of this year, but there mm-hmm. haven't been uh, the kind of hearings that uh, there were in 1985. In fact, I'm curious, uh, what have you heard from your constituents? I mean, do you know the number of phone calls that you've gotten, both pro and con? Well, so, so what I can tell you is that this was, uh, you know, I had a year-long campaign, a competitive race in PA-16 in my district. Um, this was one of the top things that uh, I not only heard from constituents, but also what I talked about. So this was a key part of my platform. Um, you know, we talked a lot about that at this point, um, and, uh, you know, I received a mandate from the voters to to deliver on the promises that I made during the campaign, and this is the the number one promise. But again, do you have any idea what kind of uh, response you've gotten, like phone calls into your office, both pro and con? Yeah, we're getting a lot of calls on it, and then I'm getting out in uh, the district as well and talking to people about it. I can tell you that uh, people are excited about this. They're excited to have more dollars available to them, and businesses are excited about and confident in uh, additional investment. Mm. Uh, so when we get back to uh, you know h- how quickly it seems to be going through, and as you said that uh, you know the, your party has been working on this, but as I said, it was a, mi- a bipartisan effort in '85. Not m- a whole lot of Democratic uh, input into this at, at, at this point. Yeah, this bill was about. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised if at the end of this we get some Democrat votes. Why do you say that? Uh, because I think uh, I think there is, you know, I've had a lot of discussions in a bipartisan way, and there there's uh, there are uh, folks on the other side of the aisle who really do believe in the concepts that uh, we're advancing uh, with this bill. Um, and so, you know, I would not be surprised if at the end of the day we do see some uh, bipartisan support for the bill. Even though uh, your, your caucus has been working on this for some time, as you describe, it actually has only been in bill form for a short period of time compared to a lot of other legislation that goes through Congress. 700 pages. Have, have you read that bill? Uh, I have. And again, this was uh, uh, included in the broad framework of The Better Way, which was published uh, a, at least a year and a half ago. Um, and then... Uh, Broad concepts have been talked about, both in the Ways and Means Committee, which I'm not a member of, 
Um, so I haven't been party to, to some of the uh, discussions and hearings that have taken place there. Uh, but there was a broad framework uh, some months ago that outlined in, in fairly good detail uh, where we were headed on the bill. That was work that had been done uh, with both the House and the Senate and the administration. Um, and so there's been, as I said, a lot of discussion uh, leading up to the time that the bill was introduced. And uh, as the bill has been changed, as it's going through the process, uh, there's still minor differences in the way that the Senate and the House uh, uh, you know, have outlined the bill. And so those, those will be worked out. But there's been uh, a lot of input. Uh, from all across the country, frankly, uh, into the makeup of this bill. How long did it take you to read 700 pages? Well, it takes a while. I'd say. That probably is not the kind of thing you sit down with a cup of coffee and a fire going and, uh, you know, prop your feet up. You get you get a lot of information in this job, I'll tell you that. <laughs> I would say. So whatever comes out of the conference committee, will you support? Uh, it, it, I think uh, yes. Um, I you know, don't want to give an unqualified yes until I see the final bill that, that we'll vote on. But I can tell you that I support both versions, the version that came out of the House and the version that came out of the Senate. I'm familiar with the uh, differences between the two, and I'm very confident that uh, those are going to be worked out. And uh, you know, I'm almost certain it'll be a bill that uh, I will support. But again... I don't want to give an unqualified yes until I see that final bill. Congressman, thank you for the few minutes that we've had on the air today. And hopefully as this process uh, continues, we can uh, speak again. I'd love to. Thank you for having me, Scott. Have a good day. Congressman Lloyd Smucker, thank you very much for being with us today. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle, bringing quality care to your community through Harrisburg, Community Osteopathic, West Shore, Carlisle, Hanover, Lancaster, Lidditz, and Memorial Hospitals. More information is available at upmcpinnacle.com. The Federal Communications will vote, uh, Communications Commission, I should say, will vote this month on whether to overturn the net neutrality rules installed by the Obama administration, which maintain equality and speed and delivery of web content for consumers. We're joined now to talk about net neutrality with uh, Penn State Telecommunications and Law Professor Rob Frieden and Andrew Hacker, Harrisburg University cybersecurity expert in residence. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. Nice to be here. If you have a question or a comment about net neutrality, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at org. All right, I'm going to start with the basic question, because even though there's been a lot of discussion about this over the last week or so, there probably are a lot of people who don't understand exactly what net neutrality is. So what is it? Well, I'll take a crack at that uh, and... uh try to make it as simple as possible. It gets very, very complicated very, very quickly. It's, uh, it's like an onion with very uh, uh, numerous uh, layers. But the bottom line is the, uh, the FCC uh, has a sort of party-based difference of opinion in terms of what the Internet should be. Uh, network neutrality advocates believe that it should be a non-discriminatory open forum where uh, you don't block traffic, you don't drop packets, you don't deliberately throttle or slow down traffic, and you don't allow the Internet service provider to sort of prioritize service based on whether they can uh, receive a surcharge. So it's a non-discriminatory requirement. It, not, it doesn't harken back to a public utility monopoly bell system type regulation, because we have that same sort of attitude, same sort of requirement for hotel operators, for example. So it's a non-discriminatory open requirement. Okay, so, uh, and again, I'm going to ask a basic question. How are consumers impacted by what is in place now? And then, of course, the question to follow up with is how could they be impacted if uh, the FCC decides to overturn? Right. Well, I should I should start by saying I'm not... Um, 
speaking for Penn State, I am not a sponsored researcher. Uh, I can see flaws and benefits on both sides. But specifically to your question, there are instances where the existing regulations, uh, the network neutrality regulations, might constrain flexibility on the part of the Internet service provider. There are instances where, for example, you've got a uh, 100,000 uh, people in a stadium all trying to look at the uh, instant replay of a uh, disputed uh, call for a football game. And at that situation, maybe what I call better than best efforts uh, management of the network to facilitate the carriage of those video bits make, make sense. On the other hand, uh, there is a recognition, I think, that you know, these carriers, these Internet service providers aren't charities, and they're going to look for every opportunity to sort of enhance their bottom line. In doing that, they can divide the network into fast lanes and slow lanes, and from a consumer perspective, it's going to end up possibly resulting in significantly higher costs for consumers. So my sort of primary emphasis is on what are the consequences? And the consequences are that if you give free reign to carriers, they're going to end up um, trying to maximize revenues and, in this case, uh, uh, overcharging or possibly gouging customers, particularly when there aren't many alternative broadband options uh, in existence. Andrew, uh, Andrew Hacker, how do you see it? Yeah, yeah, and I'll, I'll preface everything the same way by saying that, you know, I'm, I'm speaking of my own opinion, not necessarily that of Harrisburg universities. And, and when I, you know, I think of net neutrality, for me, you know, I think about the technologies and, and, you know, how much innovation has happened on the internet and the fact that, you know, throughout its history, it's always been an open system. And I think, you know, many people don't necessarily realize, you know, all of the different applications that they use, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, downloading video over your phone or Facebook or WhatsApp or any kind of, you know, different messenger services, they all use different, you know, technologies in the way they communicate. And one of the things that that's interesting about, you know, the potential repeal of net neutrality is, you know, how how do we differentiate all those different technologies? And you know, will and, and what actually will the service providers do given the opportunity to sort of, you know, create that slow lane and fast lane? I mean, could they potentially create bundles? You know, you know, like, um, you know, on your cable network, you might have a bundle of certain channels that you, you know pay a premium for, you know, traditionally we've never seen anything like that. So, you know, for me, it's, it's really, you know, if, if we were able to handle, um, you know, this segregation of, of different traffic in a way that made sense and it was pro-consumer, I think that would be great. But I think the, the potential problem is, you know, what happens if it's done in a way that, um, you know, content that um, companies don't pay a premium for doesn't get served. I mean, you're almost kind of looking at, you know, a, a content filtering on the Internet, which, you know, as we know from social networks and, and search engines, you know, that can be an issue where, you know, companies that pay more money are the ones that get higher postings on search results, right? So, you know, if you're a small business or you're, you know, just starting out, you have your own website, you know, you may not get your website seen by, by most consumers because you're not paying, you know, the, the premium charges to get your your service and the fast lane, so to speak. So, you know, I think there's definitely some concern. I mean, I think if it was handled properly and and service providers were, you know, transparent and upfront about how they were handling, you know, all of these different um, traffic lanes, you know, I think, you know, there might be some advantage there. But I think, you know, really the fear is is that, you know, they might not be. They might, you know, come up with some um, some mechanism, you know, as as was said, that you know will maximize their their profit, but not necessarily serve you know, the consumer as far as how they actually use the Internet. So yeah. I think it's a, a dual-edged sword there. If you have a question or a comment about net neutrality, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at org. You can leave a message on WITF's uh, Facebook page. On Twitter, we are at smarttalkwitf. Again, that phone number, 1-800-729-7532. So just to simplify this a little bit more, basically we're talking about two things here. Uh, whether the speed of which someone can access uh, data, a, a website, or whether actually that website or that data can be blocked, correct? Well, uh, I want to go back to uh, Andrew's uh, summary. I thought it was really very, very good. And, and uh, the, the, the problem is there is so much that an ISP can do behind the scenes that uh, a subscriber doesn't know. 
So, for example, going to that question you just raised, there's nothing against ISPs. There's nothing in the existing rules uh, prohibiting Internet service providers from tiering service on the basis of how fast the uh, bits get transmitted or, for that matter, how much you can consume per month, a data rate like you have in a wireless system. But the, uh, the, the sort of baseline requirements are that you don't block, you don't drop traffic, you don't deliberately create congestion. And there have been smoking guns. There have been scenarios where these carriers have seen a uh, business uh, upside in blocking or slowing down traffic. Uh, a couple of years ago, uh, suddenly overnight, Netflix traffic bogged down. You had a slideshow instead of uh, a movie. And remarkably, that problem resolved with the payment of a surcharge overnight. The problem evaporated. And lastly, uh, the way the uh, repeal is structured, the uh, title of the FCC initiative is called Restoring Internet Freedom. And, you know, that sounds really good. And advocates for repealing network neutrality say, well, it's going to create new jobs. It's going to spur innovation. It's going to stimulate uh, investment. It's going to remove disincentives to investment. They never get around to showing how that's going to happen or, more importantly, how uh, the existing rules, uh, which are similar to what hotels have to uh, uh, comply with, has stifled employment or innovation or investment. Mm. So let me, you know, go over a, a couple things here that, uh, you know, one thing that you have heard from the FCC is that uh, repealing net neutrality regulations could result in mobile broadband providers being able to let their customers access certain content without using up their data plans. ISPs and content providers could pair up and create deals to make this happen. However, this may end up with ISPs giving preference to those providers that they have deals with. In other words, those who can afford to pay a little bit more money. So what about that argument? Well, that's... uh, That's going to require a little bit of nuance. What you just discussed is something called zero rating, which means that if you have a data plan that is capped at a certain amount of of content that you can download in a a month, the carrier won't debit the rate uh, plan, the data plan, for certain types of traffic. That is different from something called paid prioritization, which is analogous to uh, you're you're going to a a, a Disney um, website event or a, a Disney, um, um, what do you call them, uh, amusement park, and you pay for the uh, the privilege of jumping the queue and you get on the roller coaster, you get on the ride before everybody else. Zero rating is, a, in my way of thinking, a tiering or marketing strategy versus sort of jumping the queue is paid prioritization. There is a problem, though, that if you sort of work the zero rating system uh, to the sort of uh, bleeding edge, you might get into a situation where you do create uh, sort of fast lanes and slow lanes, and then you sort of have to see where extortion might come into play, where somebody with a new uh, venture, a new video venture, which could have its traffic transmitted without a problem, suddenly experiences uh, that same sort of thing that Netflix did, uh, bogged down slideshows instead of movies. Uh, Andrew, what were we going to add? Andrew, are you there? Yep, I'm here. Okay. What were you going to add to that? Yeah, well, one of the things I wanted to mention, there's two components that I see to this as well, too, is one is from a technology standpoint. You know, I I think the the speed of Internet connectivity have been going up, and the amount of data that, you know, Internet service providers, you know, have been offering as far as their caps have been going up very quickly. I mean, you know, you can get unlimited data plans, you know, a lot of different areas – you know, the speed at which you can access the Internet now compared to what they were just five years ago, you know, we're almost talking a a factor of 10. I mean, you can almost get a gigabit speed into the Internet. So to me, you know, the technology is improving at a fast enough rate that really shouldn't be an issue to, to have to even, you know, have these priority lanes. The other piece that's worth mentioning is, you know, all of these providers, whether they're Internet service providers, whether they're content providers, social media providers, search providers, they're all competing for consumers, right? Because they're all getting into this this content game, and they make their money, their bread and butter, at least, you know, Internet sites do from, you know, how many people view those sites. So to me, it's kind of, you know, I think there's another dynamic going on here, and that is some level of competition, which obviously overall is great for the consumer because, 
you know, if you've got multiple providers competing for the same service, you know, overall there should be a you know an improvement of service and lowering in price. Isn't isn't uh, that? Yeah. Let me interrupt for a second, Andrew. Isn't that that's? I mean, you can't read the minds of the FCC, but uh, the people who tend to favor this. Basically, what it reminds you of is deregulation and that uh, competition will do exactly what you just described. Right, right. Yeah, right. The issue is, the difference there is that certain Internet service providers are sort of the the gatekeepers, right? And if, you know, the the issue is, is can they make rules behind the scenes that, you know, negatively affect how the consumers, you you know, accomplish that access? That, That is the fear. But again, if, you know, if everything was done, you know, if your bill stated clearly, you know, here's how we're doing this, we're giving priority to this based on, you know, this package, and it was very clearly stated, then, you know, I think think there could be a positive. But really, I mean, I think the fear is that, you know, things will happen that, you know, are not, you know, on the front page or, you know, they're not being transparent about, then, then, you know, I think there'd be some problems. Right. I agree agree with uh, Andrew, particularly in that notion of transparency. And let me give you an example of non-transparency that that really confuses consumers. Uh, uh, Andrew mentioned that uh, we have, quote-unquote, unlimited service options. Well, it's not really unlimited. If you exceed a certain threshold of 20, 25, 30 uh, gigabytes in a month, you get throttled as a broadband uh, wireless subscriber, meaning that the traffic is deliberately slowed down, notwithstanding what the FCC said about throttling, and you can't use it for video. It goes down to something called 2G, second-generation service speeds, as opposed to 4G or 3G speeds. So transparency is is key, and the second key aspect is the sufficiency or lack thereof of competition. So when my uh, I get the message on my phone that say that says I'm nearing my data limit, even though I have an unlimited plan, that's what's happening after I pass that limit. It's going to slow down. Yes. Let's take some phone calls. Zach is in Harrisburg. Zach, you're on the air. Yes. How you doing? Thanks for taking my call. Yes, you're welcome. Uh, I'm an old time. I'm I'm 11 years Air Force. I was a telecommunications specialist back then, and. We use things like GraphNet, Twix, Telex, all that old stuff while we were building this thing we call the net. And um, most most of us from back then never seen it being a a paid situation at all. I mean, we, we when American Online came on, I think that was the beginning of the end of, of the free net that we thought we were building. So, which so is, I, I think this is this is a slippery slope when we're giving these companies more and more power over something I feel was 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 publicly created. Mm-hmm. Hey, thank you very much for your call, gentlemen. What about that? I mean, basically, what he's saying is the technology has progressed so much, has moved so fast, and moved so far that uh, and when he talks about America Online (AOL). Boy, that seems like such a long time ago. Uh, but uh, that, and you know, two questions there. One, that it has increased so much that we haven't even been able to keep up with the, the technology. Two, that maybe, and this is one of the arguments for repealing net neutrality, that it gives ISPs motivation to innovate even further. Whoever wants to take those. Yeah, yeah, this is Andrew. I mean, I, I, I agree 100%. You know, from, from the beginning, you know, of the days of the Internet when there were, you know, 10 computers talking to each other, you know, it was, it was, uh, it was new, it was fresh, it was free, it was open. Um, I, I think the other piece to it today is, too, is that you, you really don't know what that next technology is going to be tomorrow. You know, I mean, maybe it's your car, you know, connecting to an Internet service provider to, you know, provide the, you know, actual you know, driving guidance if it's an autonomous vehicle, right? And, and you know, the big piece is, you know, if we don't have that openness, we don't know what the effects are going to be, you know, uh, down the line because we are so dependent now on Internet service. We are so much more dependent now than we were even 10 or 20, you know, 20 years ago. You know, everything that we did, we got in our car and went down to a physical building. But, you know, we do all our online banking on there. You know, we watch all of our content. We get all of our information. So, you know, the – that connection is becoming so much more important to consumer, well, to everybody, really. And, you know, on some level, you know, we really need to understand how that connection is being managed. I mean, to me, that's the important piece. Let's take a call from Brendan in Ephrata. Brendan, you're on the air. Yes, thank you. Uh, people are talking about paying, having to pay more for something. Uh, 
Well, one, the Internet seems to be working pretty good uh, with all the competition that there has been. But I wanted a hot car a couple years ago, and I could have gotten the base car, but with a hot engine and everything, it was quite a bit more. And you want more power, you pay for it, Um, like with anything else. And it sounds like a lot of these people whining, uh, want to see their movies free, where if you want perfect picture and quality, go to the theater and pay for it. I mean, they're expecting to, you know, get the Library of Alexandria for free, and they're uh, held in their hand, which is what you got with the cell phone nowadays. Hey, but um, hey, it hey. seems more more people are just whining about wanting something free, um, and they want to get exactly what somebody who can afford a Ferrari, but they want to be driving a Nissan Sentra or a Kia. Um, Hey, Brandon, yeah, I th- pay for a Kia, but have a Ferrari. I think we get your point. Uh, so, Rob, what about that? I mean, well, he, he's basically saying you're, you, you want higher speeds, uh, you, you're going to pay for it. Right. And I think the, the caller has a point there that the, uh, the carriers are entitled to recoup their investment, and that investment has been substantial billions and billions of dollars to create bigger pipes and faster pipes. So nobody uh, disputes that you can tier service and have a bronze plan and a silver plan and a gold plan and a platinum plan based on speed or how much you download. What really gets to the crux of network neutrality is do you want to allow the carrier not only to provide that sort of rising tide raising all ships, but also to uh, create sort of tiering of how they're going to handle the bits. So if you don't pay the surcharge, your bits get shunted off to a slow lane. If you pay a a premium and, you know, a a surcharge, you get the fast lane. And the worst-case scenario would be this innovative new venture, which can have its traffic uh, handled uh, without any surcharge now, has to pay the surcharge. And bear in mind that, you know, the carriers are getting substantial broadband subscription payments from subscribers. Now they want to add from uh, add the amount that they get from subscribers an additional amount through a surcharge upstream from specific content providers, and that's that's the scenario I'm troubled by, where you sort of create artificial congestion by shunting off traffic into slow lanes to try to extort additional payment. And another concern along those lines is that, and I, I have to hearken back to uh, other industries that uh, have been deregulated, that the idea, again, is to create competition, but sometimes that doesn't happen. The biggest companies, the companies with the most money, uh, those are the ones that seem to benefit sometimes. And in this case, there are those that feels that feel that the Comcast, Time Warners, and Verizons of the world that uh, will have more of an impact over customers will be able to charge more and be more of the gatekeepers that you that you described right from a from the perspective of a subscriber ask your audience ask anybody what are your broadband choices what are your true broadband choices i'm talking apples to apples currently wireless is evolving into a broadband option but look at it this way they have caps they have congestion problems. It's, it's limited to how many subscribers can be handled by the, the nearest tower. When we get into something called 4G and fifth-generation wireless, it will become a much more competitive and robust alternative to wireline. But if you ask the typical subscriber in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, not just in rural PA where I live, how many choices they have, they would look at the cable company as option one. There's something called DSL, Digital Subscriber Line Service, which is increasingly unviable because it's too slow provided by the phone company. There are some options in cities that are a fiber optic or a combination of copper and fiber, but wireless is, is not really a competitive alternative when you look at it on a dollars-to-dollar basis. So in many, many places, including where I live, I've got uh, Comcast, and that's about all I have. So, Andrew, final question. Uh, where does this go? I mean, it seems as though the FCC is committed, although polls across the country, now whether uh, consumers understand it or not is a question, although it doesn't seem like there's a, a, a whole lot of support amongst Americans for this. Right, right. Yeah, well, I mean, one of the things is, you know, uh, consumers kind of fly so fast through what they're doing that, you know, a lot of how this um, you know how their traffic is managed. You know, it's kind of you know under the radar. You know, users click through um, end-user licensing agreements without even reading them and knowing what they're agreeing to. So, you know, for me, it's more 
it's more an awareness thing. You know, I, I would want to make sure that consumers are aware of, you know, the potential pluses and minuses for, you know, uh, having this control over Internet traffic versus, you know, having it free, be free and open and, you know, what all the pros and cons are because, you know, really there's, there's a lot of sides to this story. You know, there's a lot of what ifs. Uh, there's a lot of uncertainty on how things could, could be, you know, could pan out one way or the other. You know, but I think as long as, you know, the communication's open and, you know, there's transparency, you know, I, I think, um, you know, I think there's a there's a positive way forward. And I want to thank our guests for being with us today. Andrew Hacker, who is with Harrisburg University cybersecurity expert in residence. And Rob Frieden is a Penn State telecommunications and law professor. Gentlemen, thank you very much for being with us today. My pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Between 1939 and 1948, Henry Norwood Barney Yule was considered the fastest human in the world. He attended Lancaster's McCaskey High School in the mid-1930s, went on to attend Penn State, where his track career netted 12 gold medals in college track meets. His Olympic aspirations were put on hold due to World War II, but he competed in 1948, winning a gold medal in the 4x100 relay, won some other medals as well. You'll return to Lancaster later in life. He passed on in 1996 at the age of 78. Today, a group from Lancaster is working to preserve Barney Yule's legacy. And to talk about that is Jeremiah Miller, coordinator of the McCaskey High School Alumni Association. Mr. Miller, thank you for being with us today. Thanks for having us. Also joining us is Ron Ford. He's the nephew of Barney Yule, and I understand that uh, he's not quite as far, uh, quite as fast as Barney Yule, but uh, he was pretty fast in, in his time. Also a former Lancaster County Commissioner. Commissioner Ford, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call. 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. You can leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page. On Twitter, we are at SmartTalkWITF. Again, that phone number, 1-800-729-7532. All right, so run for let me start with you. This was your uncle. Uh, Barney Yule was your uncle. So you looked at him a lot differently than what the public did. But uh, you mentioned to me that uh, you were eight years old when he won his gold medal in uh, the 48 Olympics. Tell me about that time. Well, you got to keep in mind what 1948 was like. It wasn't like everybody had a television in their house and that sort of thing. So... I was. I remember very vaguely that uh, there was a lot of joy that Barney had won this Olympic that a medal medals, but it did not dawn on me really to be perfectly honest with you until I was in junior high and started running track myself that I really understood the significance of his uh, worldwide accomplishments. That he was e- equated in terms of his what he could do in terms of a sprinter, a jumper, and a. 200-meter man, he was equivalent to Jesse Owens in terms of what he was able to accomplish uh, both in high school and in college. You know, just when I was reading that sentence about uh, being put on hold during World War II, I mean, how old was he in 1948? Because probably the prime years for an athlete he missed during World War II. Yeah, it really was an eight-year period that he missed. And he was he was 30 years old uh, at the time that he ran in 1948 Olympics. And we have to keep in mind that, again, in today's environment, it's not unusual to have a sprinter running at the age of 30 because they have personal trainers. They're getting paid large sums they of money. They do it year round. <laughs> yeah. But in those days, most of the sprinters like, were in their early 20s. So they used to call him the old man when he was running. And so that was like... Then the fact that he continued to train and to continue to keep himself in shape without the kind of financial support that athletes today get at that level, uh, it's just amazing that for an eight-year period, he continued to train, even hitchhike from Lancaster to to Philadelphia to practice after working a eight-hour shift in, in basic what's oh. a foundry. <laughs> that is amazing. <laughs> Had to hitchhike to trade. <laughs> so, Jeremiah Miller, why this project to uh, to commemorate uh, what uh, Barty Yule, to, mem- to really remember what he has done? Well, I work at McCaskey High School, and unfortunately, a lot of today's youth don't know who Barney Yule 
was. Our stadium, our sports complex at McCaskey is named after Barney, but his legacy in a way is is slowly being forgotten. So it was very important to me um, when uh, I was approached by the other committee members, Arthur Morris, former mayor of Lancaster, Ron Ford, who's with me today, uh, Meredith Kalian, who's the owner of a collection of Barney Yule's memorabilia, including his, his gold and silver uh, medals, Ken Stout, another McCaskey graduate. A lot of these people are track and field people, uh, including Ron, who's sitting next to me. Um, so they had a lot invested in the idea of bringing Barney Yule's legacy back to life. Um, and so as the coordinator of alumni affairs at McCaskey, um, I felt a need to um, get together with this group and see what we could do to um, implant Barney Yule's memory in the minds of the youth of today. Um, so we're working on a number of different things. Um, he lived at 55 Green Street for 30 years, the last 30 years of his life. So in January, we are aiming to um, dedicate some panels in a parklet near his home there, which will um, be focused on his time at Green Street. Um, it, 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 the, the title of the panels is Barney Yule's neighborhood. So people from that neighborhood can read a little bit about who Barney Yule was, and it'll always be uh, memorialized as the place where he lived for those last 30 years. We also have applied for a state historical marker. Mm. Um, it's very flexible as to where that can go, but we have submitted the application uh, for that marker. And it's it's his 100th birthday in February. He was born in 1918 right here in Harrisburg. Um, I'd just like to add that uh, the Olympics can sometimes eclipse just what an incredible athlete he was. Um, at East Junior High School, which is now Edward Hand, he was called the East Junior High Flash. No one had seen a kid run this fast. At McCaskey, um, he won the National 100 Meters Dash Championship in Princeton, New Jersey, where he also ran against Jesse Owens. But he was very young at the time. I would venture to guess he may have been the only athlete to try out for the Olympics in '36 who then competed in 1948 at the age of 30. And when he was 30, he broke the world record, or he matched the world record in the 100 meters dash for 10.2 seconds at the Olympic qualifying rounds. So he was just an incredible athlete. Um, on his 100th birthday, we're hoping to show a documentary uh, that I've been working on, interviewing people who knew Barney Yule. Um, and uh, we really are encouraging the community to get in touch with us if they have memorabilia they'd like to donate, if they have Barney Yule articles or um, programs or anything from athletic events he participated in. Um, and they can go to McCaskeyAlumni.org to find out how they can donate those items. You know, I think very often we sometimes take for granted or don't realize the history of what was right in front of us. Now, Ron Ford, I mean, this was your uncle, so eventually you, as you said, you did understand, you know, how this is. But to be able to say at one time the world's fastest human is just incredible. I mean, there have only been several people over the last hundred years described that way. Bob Hayes, I think about in the 1960s, you know, some of the Olympic champions that we we have today. But over a a long period of time, Barney Yule described as the world's fastest human. I mean, that is just incredible. Yeah, it's almost unprecedented in terms of the number of years that he was able to compete at that level. And I don't want to get redundant, but without the kind of financial support that athletes today get. And uh, I, I really think that you could count on your right hand and still have a couple fingers left. The number, that caliber of athlete who was able to maintain that level of competition for that long period of time. And uh, it's just, uh, he, he was an outstanding sprinter. He was an outstanding jumper. And he he was close to the world record in the 200 meters at one time. So he was just uh, just an amazing, amazing athlete. You, you know, Jeremiah, you sent uh, to me a number of articles of uh, uh, from over the years of even when he was in junior high and st- first started getting some notice from uh, the media, the local media of, uh, you know, as you said, here in Harrisburg and in junior high and then moving on to McCaskey in, in Lancaster for, for high school. But one of the things that struck me, and because it's language that is not acceptable today, is that there would be so many headlines that would say, colored boy from uh, Lancaster, world's fastest, or 
Negro wins 100 yards. I mean, right. and if it was just one or two of these articles, it was almost every one. Right. Virtually every article you can find um, from that period, from his junior high school days and in his high school days, um, uses that type of language. Uh, I, I think it's just a testament to the fact that, um, you know, McCaskey today is a very, very diverse high school, um, you know, just incredibly diverse, the most diverse high school in the region. Uh, but at the time, um, at, you know, even though Lancaster had a certain diversity as a, a small city, um, Barney was one of only two African-Americans in, in his class at McCaskey at that time. Um, as far as I know, if you look through the yearbook, I mean, there, there are only two African-Americans in the class of 38 yearbook. Incidentally, this is the 80th anniversary of McCaskey High School. Um, he was a member of the very first class uh, that graduated. Uh, but I think, you know, just the the, um, the framework of political correctness has changed. I don't think people at that time, um, you know, realized <laughs> how they sounded when they spoke of him that way. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's really interesting, uh, as I've done my research, um, uh, to see the, the type of language that was used, um, which to Today uh, certainly um, uh, seems awfully degrading. Well, absolutely. <laughs> Ron was, I mean, as he told stories about that period, was there ever discrimination that uh, that that he went against? I mean, I imagine that Jesse Owens in the '36 Olympics probably maybe made some discrimination go away as far as Olympic athletes go. But did he ever experience any of that? I'm sure he did. We're talking about 1948. Uh, the fact that uh, the city of Lancaster, when he returned from, from the Olympics in 1948, uh, the city actually gave a, a house to, to Barney Yule. But the house had to be located in the part of the town where African Americans were concentrated. So, and I, I think at that point, a lot of people didn't even think about it. Well, naturally, African Americans should live in this you know, three, four square. Segregation is yeah, accepted. Ex- yeah, exactly. It was a almost a sec. So, I'm sure he encountered many, many of these kinds of incidents. But Barney had a had a had an attitude of. I mean, he would just fight through those kinds of things, and he didn't allow them uh, to uh, pull him down or to prevent him from moving on to his overall ob- objective. But uh, it, there's no doubt that the climate has changed uh, somewhat. Uh, it was very common to even have ads in the newspaper, black, white, wanted for employment. So uh, we're talking about a different era. Mm-hmm. What kind of man was he? I mean, now you saw him as an uncle, but uh, what kind of man was Barney Yule? Barney was really a quiet, unassuming type of person. Uh, he, he never bragged about his accomplishments. Uh, he One thing that we uh, want to emphasize is that throughout his life, he tried to help other young people. He received a number of medals and recognition from organizations like the Boys Club of America and other organizations like that because of his continuing to mon- to uh, to assist and help young athletes in, in the city of Lancaster. So he's, he's a humble guy. Uh, he, he didn't, he wasn't, uh, you know, if you've seen him walking down the street, you wouldn't say, hey, there's the world's greatest athlete. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he was uh, very, very, very humble, very simple. Did you ever run against him, or was the age different? No, there's a great, there a great deal. Of <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, and and you know, I, I was a, I was a decent high school athlete, but I was nowhere near the level of uh, of of uh, competition that he was. Jeremiah, I want to kind of take a step back to what we were talking about earlier, and the reasons that you do want to honor and commemorate uh, Barney Yule, that, uh, you know, this is history and probably some of the biggest history in in Lancaster County, in central Pennsylvania, really. Uh, I'm I'm surprised that he hasn't gotten the kind of recognition up until this point. Mm. Well, different endeavors have taken place over the years. Um, You know, when he was still with us, the community kind of banded together to help send uh, Barney and his wife Duella to the Olympics in 1984, which were held in, that, in yeah. Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. There was a big event at the Brunswick Hotel. Arthur Morris, who's on our our, 
uh, committee um, played a big role in that. And, um, you know, um, his funeral was it was a huge deal. Harrison Dillard, who ran against him in the Olympics, came to Lancaster um, uh, to honor him at his funeral. Um, you know, the, the, the sports complex at McCaskey was named for Barney. However, since his passing, you're right, uh, there hasn't been a whole lot of attention paid to him. Uh, Mike Gross, who's a writer for LNP, has done a number of stories over the years about Barney and, and he's been uh, very generous in, in giving us some publicity for this project. Um, but, um, yeah, and, and, you know, Barney is someone – I went to McCaskey. I was a graduate in, in 2000. I wasn't um, an athlete. Uh, but I had never really heard of Barney. I may have peripherally known the name, uh, but I didn't know what he did or what he accomplished, even though the stadium was named after him. And um, when I first uh, got my job at McCaskey as the alumni coordinator – his name uh, just kept popping up as sort of the the most um, you know kind of um, respected alum in terms of national. I mean, he he made an impact on the whole world, um, and so it was really important to me to um, to recognize him and and share his memory with our students. And then uh, this committee just kind of magically showed up at our doorstep, and um, you know at the same time there was an article about Meredith Kalian's uh, collection uh, of Barney Yule's uh, memorabilia, and so and it happened to just come inside with his 100th birthday. Mm. So uh, well, the timing worked out well. Yeah, there, there was one article, though, that sort of prompted this. It was an article about his medal. Mm. It was fake news, actually, it turned out oh. <laughs> to be untrue. It was about his, his uh, medals being stolen from Penn State. Well, Penn State didn't have his medals. They had one medal, but the other two belonged to this Meredith Colleen. The gold? The, 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 she has the, the uh, gold and the Silver. Yes, she is the gold and the silver. So uh, that article prompted this committee to come together, consisting of Art Morris and myself and Kenny Stout and Meredith Colleen. So that sort of was a catalyst to uh, crystallizing this uh, whole idea of, hey, we really got to do something to try to get Barney Yule recognized for the accomplishments that he did have. Well, a wonderful project, and, you know, just, Jeremiah, as you were speaking, I was thinking, you know, what a wonderful way to motivate today's students at McCaskey and really all, all over central Pennsylvania that, uh, you know, someone from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, who can uh, be the world's fastest human and the kind of motivation that that can get. I want to thank you, gentlemen, for being with us. One more time for the website if someone wants to contribute. McCaskeyAlumni.org. You can go there and, and get our contact information and find out how you can help. Gentlemen, thank you very much for being with us today. Tomorrow, we're going to talk a little bit more about tax reform with Senator Bob Casey. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a trusted resource in our communities. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health Spine Institute, part of UPMC Pinnacle, offering a complete range of services to diagnose and treat your spine condition. More information is available at upmcpinnacle.com spine.